What's up, everybody? Welcome back. And thank you so much for listening and subscribing to Anthro for the Homies. I'm truly blown away at the amount of support that I've received, especially support from around the world. People are listening in all kinds of countries, such as the Philippines, Norway, Denmark. Shout out to the homies that are listening in the Philippines, Norway, Denmark. Seriously, if you're not in the United States and you're listening to Anto for the homies, then please hit me up. Uh, I'm serious. I'd like to send you a T-shirt. It's the least I could do for listening to my podcast. And you can find me on Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Anto for the homies. I mostly check Instagram and Twitter. So those are, you know, the best places to hit me up. You can also follow the podcast at anthroforthehomies.podbean.com. That sort of serves as like a landing page in which you can see all the different episodes and read the different thumbnails or read the different descriptions and look through the different thumbnails. I also wanted to give a shout out to Lena J. Uh, Lena J left me a review on January 15th, 2021. So thank you so much, Lena J. It's a five-star review entitled great show, awesome content, relatable guests and host highly recommend for those who are intro into anthropology or want to learn more about anthropology. So thank you so much, Lena J. I truly appreciate it. That's awesome. They left me a review. Also, shout out to Amanda F89 on December 18th, 2020. She said this podcast offers a refreshing new perspective in the really interesting field of anthropology. I don't really know what anthropology is, but David breaks it down for me in a super simple way. David also has a great voice for podcasting. Oh, thank you so much. And his first episode with Roxanne was unlike anything I've heard. Looking forward to the next one. So Amanda F89 and Lena J., Thank you both so much for your review. I truly appreciate it. And if anybody else would like to leave me an honest review, please, I'd love for you to be honest, even if it's brutal. I take constructive criticism in a positive manner. So even if it's a little bit brutal, please let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know what kind of guests you'd like to be on or if you have any specific questions that you'd like me to answer on the podcast. That would be great and very much appreciative. So thank you and I hope you enjoy the next episode. Welcome to another episode of Anthro for the Homies. Today is pretty cool. I'm really stoked because this is the first time in the studio that I'll be having a guest for the second time. And uh, his name is John C. Uyoa. He uh, holds two degrees, one of them being a master's in history with uh, emphasis in Latin American history. The second degree is in anthropology with an emphasis in visual, visual anthropology. He's a father husband, professor of history and cultural anthropology at Skyline College. He's also a drummer in a band, an author, lowrider, car builder, and all-around badass, Mr. John C. Uyoa. Please say hi, John. How you doing today, man? Hey, what's up, David? Thanks for having me back. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you again. It's a pleasure to have you again. I, I knew after the first podcast we did that, you know, you were going to be a repeat guest. So here it is, man. I'm super happy that we could do it again. Um, we have a pretty cool talk for you guys, or, you know, pretty cool talk planned for today. Today, we wanted to talk about fieldwork, essentially, and how students can go from the classroom, from taking a, a class like John's class, right? You know, what does it mean? How do you go from, from sitting in a seat 
to then execute, you know, planning your field work, developing a, a, a topic around it, executing your field work, and then, you know, what happens after that. So um, I really want to give uh, John a chance to, to go ahead and start. So, um, yeah, John, um, a little bit, you know, how did you first get into field work? Like what, what was the first actual quote unquote field work, anthropological field work that you did? Wow. Um, that's a tough question. You know what I mean? Because it's like, you know, before when I was on and we were talking about, you know, everybody has that inner anthropologist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of bringing that out. And that's what I try to stress to my students. You know, I mean, when you think about, you know, when you go into, you know, a social setting, you know, people start looking around, you know, and, and people start, and, and I like to use the club for an, you know, as an example, right? Like you go into a club, right? And you start scanning the room, right? And then, you know, I ask women, you know, and, you know, I ask everybody really, like, what are your thoughts when you're doing that? Keep it real. What are you doing? You're like, oh, I can't believe they're wearing that. Right? I go and, you know, what you're doing is you're doing the comparative approach, essentially. You're comparing, you know, and and ultimately that comparison boils down to how everybody is faring in the human um or in the very darwinian sense you know the competition for mating essentially in a club context you know and uh, but that comparative approach is you know you're kind of comparing your surroundings to yourself and you're trying to get a better understanding of self based on comparing the experience quote unquote, in the field to your own, you know, kind of cultural framework. So I guess, you know, as far back as I can remember, I've always been um, interested in how people live. And I, I'm, I'm consciously avoiding the, the use of the word other, mm-hmm. right? Other people live. I'm just, I'm just curious in terms of like, I, I love cross-cultural analysis. You know what I mean? I mean, like, um, I remember, like, you know, as a kid, you know, we didn't really use, I mean, we had utensils on the table, but we mostly used tortillas to eat, (laughs) you know, and, um, and that's all technique, you know, and so my friends will come over, my brother and sister's friends will come over and they would see us eating and they would want to do it, you know, and so they would try, but then, you know, they would have like, you know, sauce running down their arms or whatever because they had their technique messed up you know (laughs) but those are all like examples of like putting yourself in a different cultural context than what you're used to in order to gain a better understanding about your world you know what i'm saying and your and your ethos and and worldview and whatnot so i mean technically i've been doing participant observation field work my whole life it just wasn't formalized I would say that to answer your question directly, it was really in graduate school that I was forced to actually do, you know, like, you know, uh, theoretically applied um, fieldwork methods and, you know, employ methodologies. Um, So I guess that was like, oh, four ish. Okay. Okay. And what was uh, what was the topic or what was the subject of your fieldwork at that time? All right. So. So when I did my master's degree in history, you know, what we're talking about when I talk about participant observation fieldwork, you know, 
there's that's just you know history and anthropology are very intimately related disciplines. I mean, they're they're called sister disciplines, right? I asked a professor one time in history because we were reading a lot of uh, social theory, and I asked him. I said, "Where do you draw the line? Where does history end and anthropology begin, and vice versa?" He looked at me and he said, "Wherever you want to draw that line." Wow. You know? And so, um, you know, historians use different do different research techniques. I mean, largely it's you know you you go and you research in a library or documents or archives, right? And then you interpret the the findings and then you present them. Mm-hmm. In anthropology, especially in cultural anthropology and ethnographic field work, when you're going out into the field to immerse yourself within a cultural setting, you know, and that can be, you know, a temporary, that can be a few days, it could be a few hours, it could be years, you know? And um, it's a completely different um, data collection uh, vantage point. You know, you're going in, and you're you're living amongst the group that you're trying to understand, mm-hmm. um, and then you you collect data, right? And then you write it up or you present it. But I want to say that you know, um, for me, it was so when I entered grad school, I entered because I wanted to teach more. I wanted to teach anthropology, so the visual anthropology track allowed me to fast track that degree right so i was done within a like a year and a half and um and so the thing with that was was i needed a topic because i had to make a film and so i was trying to find a topic trying to find a topic and as it turned out i ended up doing the life history of a friend of mine carlos caro who is a cuban immigrant and he's a master afro-cuban percussionist And so I did, I did like a, I basically did a, do, a mini documentary on his life story. And so it took me one year to make like a nine minute film. Wow. Yeah. And so the first semester was doing the field work and the second semester was um, recording, filming, editing, and then ultimately presenting the work and showing the work. Um, but that first, that first semester was all dedicated to participant observation field work. So every Thursday night, that was in a bar in the Mission District of San Francisco. (laughs) So my friends were talking about like, you know, hey man, can we come do field work with you? Right? (laughs) What a place, what a place to do field work. Uh, The the Mission District in San Francisco is is so historical, but it's, I hear what you're saying about how closely related history and anthropology are. In fact, this podcast on Apple iTunes falls under the category of history and culture because they have that category together. It's not history or culture. It's under the category of history and culture. So that just kind of further illustrates your point of how closely tied you know the the two are together now you mentioned um you know starting off your field work and the first type of um sort of formalized project that you did involving anthropological theory and whatnot are there certain data pieces that you always know to collect or are there certain data pieces that are golden nuggets when you're doing your field work like something like maybe people's names that you have to take account but are there any um uh, is there like a structure that you go off of when you're doing your field work or do you kind of just take notes as you go and then see what happens? So, I mean, before you even get into the field, 
you know, you don't just, you don't just grab a clipboard and a pen and get out there. Right. I mean, there's a whole, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to, first of all, you have to formulate a research question. You have to, um, you have to do an ethno history, you know, and, and for, you know, for, for those who don't know what an ethno history is, you need to basically do, um, an historical study around your topic and your research question that will also inform um, the researcher of what's been done and what hasn't been done holes in the research unanswered questions not only what's there but also like what's the negative space look like you know to, to use artistic terminology you know <laughs> what's there, what isn't there you know and then that will kind of you know inform your vantage point in terms of how you might want to go about conducting the work and what you're trying to find out. Okay. So then you go into the field. And so what, what I try to do when I'm doing my research, when I'm doing, when I'm collecting my data and I even hate talking like this because what it does, there, there's a very dehumanizing aspect to that, right? Where, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show up in a white lab coat and I'm going to study you. And then I'm going to go back to, you know, and, you know, to the lab and, you know, write it up. Um, I hate that shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, because we're talking about people's lives, yeah. we're talking about people's lives you know, for sure. You, have, you know, you have to build a rapport, right? You have to build a rapport. You have to gain people's trust. You can't just show up and start documenting, you know, in some contexts you get your ass kicked. You know, or, you know, people start looking at you funny, like, what are you doing? Yeah. Who's this guy? Were you judging us, man? What are you doing? What are you writing? Right. There? It, it, it depends. You know, I mean, there, there's a great book. I don't know if you've read it. It's written by a guy named Bill Buford. It's called Among the Thugs. Among the Thugs. Mm, no, I haven't read it, sir. This guy, this guy's a, he's a sociologist and we won't hold that against him. <laughs> and he was waiting for the train with his wife and they made an announcement in the station please step back soccer train arriving next and he was like soccer train why do we have to step back everybody steps back and this train pulled up and it's full of soccer hooligans like full you know because you know in england like there it's almost like a street gang mentality yeah. around around you know soccer club yeah, they have straight up right. brawls, like right. group brawls. And and that that piqued his curiosity. He was like, "What?" He was like, "Oh, I got to study this." So he ended up going back to England and he wrote this book called Among the Thugs about that particular subculture. You know what I mean? And so, you know, you don't like he couldn't just jump on the train with his, you know, his moleskin journal and his pen and start like, you know, "Hey, let me interview you," you know? You know, <laughs> put that in your notebook, you know, so you have to build a rapport and that's very, very tricky, you know, because, you know, to gain people's trust, it, it, that's a very, very delicate thing where I had, where I had an advantage with Carlos is that I met Carlos when he first got to California from Mexico, um, but from, you know, Cuba, Cuba. to Mexico then here. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'd known Carlos for, for years and, um, we actually worked together musically. And so I had, I, you know, it wasn't, he knew that I wasn't going to do him wrong or, you know, 
he I had full access to his life, including his his family, mm-hmm. you know, his home. Wow. Yeah, and so that's a big deal. I mean, that's sacred space. So trust, a lot of trust there. A lot of like trust. Excuse me, a lot of trust. So you know, um, so it, it's not always that easy though. And and so when we were, and then so so then I would have to go and do the field work and then write up the notes. So at that time, you know, I drank, and um, and so we would be in the club, me and my team watching and observing. And so I'm not taking notes in real time. You know, I have like a small notebook, like the spiral, the, the one that flips up, mm-hmm. just something that would fit into my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And discreetly, I would turn around and make my notes where no one could see, or I would go to the bathroom mm-hmm. and write stuff down and come back. So my MO in the field is for people to never see me taking notes because that helps to mitigate any kind of performance anxiety that people might have when they know they're being interviewed. I mean, even right now, I feel like, you know, there's certain things that I can say, I can't say, I have to be mindful of a lot of different things right now. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't totally just let fly, you know, and just, you know, be sitting here in my boxer shorts. I mean, well, I'm good, but I'm not, (laughs) but you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, there are some, there are some certain you know, cultural parameters that we have to be mindful of, right? Of course. And when, and when people are being interviewed and they know they're being interviewed, then the, the filtration system might be calibrated in a different way yeah. than if we're just having the conversation, right? Yeah, and of then, course. Yeah. So it, it's kind of crazy how that works because, um, you know, I'm no expert in like theoretical physics or anything like that. But from the, the few things that I have read, even atoms change when there's an observer, like even basic particles of life. As soon as an observer enters the, the point, whether that be the scientist or something like that, the atoms behave differently. So something as complex as humans and human behavior, if we are aware that, you know, somebody is starting to study us or we have we caught on to hey this person's trying to learn something about me then of course like you're saying we are naturally going to to behave a little bit differently and there maybe there might be some folks who completely just don't give a fuck and maybe they're like you know the same all the way but that's probably rare right from very rare yeah people all, will change when they know something's on to them or something well think about them. this remember when i was in elementary school mm. The, the the school principal would make their rounds every now and then mm-hmm. and even even in even in high school the principal would would walk around and maybe you know pop in lean in the door you know observe a little bit yeah man everybody sits a little straighter <laughs> everybody gets a little quieter a little more well behaved right yeah it's a, it's kind of the same concept you yeah. know it's because you know you're being watched for sure or when the when the police roll up behind you and even though you're not doing anything wrong you get up straight yeah when when the cops come behind you man your halo kind of shines a little brighter <laughs> yeah, i'm just the average citizen just on my way sir just hey i'm just 10 and 2 doing 25 right yeah. Here. <laughs> yeah 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 no no that's totally true um I think of like my field work as an archaeologist, which is like a little bit different because the material objects are no longer animate. <laughs> so they can't they don't have that 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 um, sort of a worldview shift of like, hey, this person's on to me. Right. Um, so when I take notes, I mean, I, I, I use my phone 
and uh, I just do voice records of like um, soil type, soil color, you know, soil matrix and, and whatnot, what I'm seeing. So it's a little bit yeah. different um, when there's that that human aspect that's involved. Have you ever experienced anything doing fieldwork that was sort of like maybe it made you um, not scared, but it like rocked your world or you're like, man, this is a dangerous situation or I shouldn't be here. Like, have you ever encountered anything uh, kind of crazy? Because uh, when people think of archaeology, they think of Indiana Jones. So they happen to think that for whatever reason, we're out, you know, with AKs and <laughs> running from boulders and shit like that. But have you ever experienced any any sort of strife in, in the field? Anything that made you question like, fuck, should I be here right now? Well, by the way, that bullwhip, you know, you could just turn around and whip the boulder, right? <laughs> that's what the bullwhip's for, right? Yeah. It's, it's crazy, man. Flint, flint napping. Um, that's, how, that's flint napping. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, so the thing is, is that, so there was, so when I did the, when I did the, the film on Carlos, I mean, my, my background as a musician, mm-hmm. as somebody who has been, you know, a, around music production, very comfortable on stages, very comfortable, you know, in a, in a mu- musical environment, mm. so, um, my team, not so much. So I would, you know, we're, we're making a film, right? So I would, um, so I would nudge my, my film because I was paired with, with two film students, So I nudge them and I go, Hey, you know, jump up on the stage and, you know, let, let's get B roll on just his hands playing the cowbell, just get that. And they would look at me and they would go, now? I'm like, yeah, now, go. I'm like, come on, man, the song's going to end. Because by this point, we knew, I knew the entire repertoire because the band would play on the rotation. And so I'm like, you know, they're, they're going to end, man. Get it, get it. And then they would be all like, timid about jumping up on the stage. Even though we had, you know, the, 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 the free pass, full access, yeah. stage any you know i mean the, the the band leaders knew who we were and what we were doing the management the clubs everybody knew what we were doing but they wouldn't do it so i would go give me the camera and i would jump up on there i would jump up on the stage get the shot be mindful of the cables and the you know stage monitors and all of that mm-hmm. where they were just they were afraid that they were going to fall they were they didn't want to you know so it was like that so and my and then I would write that up in my in my field notes, right? And so my professor asked me, he was like, you know, hey, are you cool with with your team? Because you know, I'm concerned. His words, I'm concerned about you know the degrees of you know you know where you're at on the emic bullseye because you are coming from such an emic perspective, and these guys from an edict perspective, right? The insider versus the outsider perspective. And so I was right in my element and perfectly comfortable, right? And where these guys were not so much, I'm like, no, it's fine. You know, they're getting it. It's just, you know, sometimes you just got to grab the camera and do it yourself, you know? (laughs) So, you know, wrap the film, hard stop. Now I'm like, okay, now I'm going to make the film I always wanted to make, make, which was, you know, low riding in Northern California, Mm. right? And so I had to do a hard shift. I, it had been a long time since I had owned a car. I didn't really know anybody in the scene in the Bay Area because I was focused on school. I'm talking about low riding. Okay. You know? And then there was a huge car show at, uh, at the Cow Palace. 
you know, which is a you know big venue in in San Francisco. And I went, and I was completely, you know, feeling out of my element. Even though this was something that I had grown up with, you know, it was just I I was sensing some culture shock. I was feeling culture shock. Wow. Right. And like, you know, anxiety, anxiety about talking to people, second guessing myself about like, why would these people ever want me to participate? Why would they ever allow me to interview them? Like I started to really, really overthink and second guess, start wow. to almost mini meltdown in real time. And then I was looking at this car and this guy came up behind me and he was like, man, they don't make them like this anymore. And I looked over, I'm like, no, they don't. I didn't even look. I just said, no, they don't. And I looked over and he was wearing a, a car club shirt. So I started to rap with this guy. And then I told him what I was about, what I was doing. He was like, come on, man. I want to take you to meet my club president, vice president, who was a married couple, Gabe and Lisette Mijares. And they were members of uh, Socios Car Club in Sacramento. And I started talking to them and I'm still in contact with them to this day. I ended up buying a car that gave me how owned. Wow. Right. So, you know, it just, it, you know, it ended up just being like kind of one of those things, but, you know, but at first I was feeling like really, really, you know, um, disjointed and I was feeling culture shock. That was small potatoes in comparison to like being in a favela in Brazil. <laughs> and the guy saying to you, you know, if you hear gunshots, don't panic, just get down, stay calm, and just stay with me and I'll get us out of here. You know, and then, you know, and that's after seeing police wearing like combat gear, like they're dressed for all out warfare. You know, you know that you're not writing it's a small world at disneyland <laughs> you know i mean it yeah it's you know, real you know? and so you know but i never felt like oh man i shouldn't be here it was mm. just that you know the senses are heightened or you know being you know at a meetup you know at a lowrider meetup you know and then you know a fight pops off right and then suddenly you know people come back with guns Right. And I don't want to like, you know, you know, over, over, overly portray low riding in a negative light, but that's part of the reality of what happens when people get together and there's drinking involved and there's people who are not necessarily coming for the family atmosphere, but in fact are looking for trouble. So, yeah. you know, it, yes, it has happened. Not so much that I shouldn't be here, but okay, if you want to be here, this is part of you know what goes along with being yeah 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 and i say i say like shouldn't be here because i've experienced culture shock on the field as well and i'm only saying that because i've also had instances where i question that like should i be here like what am i what am i doing here um yeah. my 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 culture shock on the field work came um in spain actually so i did some field work in spain and um it was quite interesting. It was it was an amazing, amazing field school that we did. We were working on a necropolis, which was like a you know a city of a bunch of buried, buried dead people. And one of the necropoli had about I want to say up to like two hundred graves. So it was a great opportunity for students to you know go to Spain, excavate in these graves in the necropoli, and then you know do some research, write up write up on it, and then 
you know, go on with their careers. So we were in Spain. We were on a small island of Menorca, Spain. And we, I, you know, I had always known that Spain had crazy festivals, but I had never been to Spain. I had never been to one of these crazy festivals. And I believe I was in my mid twenties, like 25, 26 years old, somewhere around there. And, um, Lo and behold, <laughs> about towards the end of the field school, we're walking around the little town. We're on a small island of Menorca, Spain, right? It's uh, one of the Balearic Islands off the coast. And so we're walking around the small little town and all these shopkeepers are like boarding up their windows. And I'm like, huh, what's going on here? Like everybody is like boarding up their windows and floods of, of people just keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. And so this was, we were in Spain for an archaeological dig, but this was something that was not related to archaeology, but we're anthropologists. So it's, we're in a foreign country and a bunch of people coming, a bunch of people coming. So this festival happens and it was entirely overwhelming the amount of people that had just encompassed the island, like out of nowhere. I think the population went from a couple of thousand to like 30, 40,000, like insane amount of people, um, people from all ages, high school kids coming and everybody just getting really, really drunk, which is cool. Like I love to party. I love me a good time. But this good time was unlike any good time I had seen because just like the sheer amount of, of, of people and alcohol. And it was like, it was just a free for all. And I was like, home, oh, this is, this is kind of interesting. And what did it for me was I saw a, a group of a Spanish men approach a group of young Spanish teen, teenage girls. And these girls were very, very young, like clearly teenagers. And these men were much older. And, um, the men, the, the way the men approached the women, you know, to say, hey, how you doing was they walk up and they literally just grabbed her face and started telling her how beautiful she was and started kissing on her neck. And, I was, and the girls were very, very uncomfortable and they were very young. And as an anthropologist, I'm just observing. Right. And thinking, how would this fly in America? Like, although I, I wasn't I wasn't um, being, being American centric. And I didn't go up to him and say, Hey, no, you can't do that, sir. Stop. Right. I would never, you know, unless there was some obvious physical violence going along, but it just seemed like that was the culture of the festival. And that was okay. And that was tolerant behavior. And that type of behavior just kept going on. And we saw another instance and another instance, and then even younger. And there, and it was just, I had this moment where I looked around and I realized I'm one, not in the United States. I'm not in my country. I'm not in my home. And there's so much going on around me that even with my anthropological training, I don't really know how to understand and process all of this that's going on. And it's funny because you're like, wow, I'm, I'm supposed to be a trained anthropologist, but I'm feeling all these things of uncomfort and I have to put my training to work now and still be a polite individual, even though I am essentially called Sir Shock, like you said. So it's not easy. It's not always easy. And it sounds sexy and it sounds attractive and it sounds like, yeah, we could go here and we could do these amazing things and study these really cool things. We could take amazing photos and videos and bring back and share these experiences. But sometimes we have these experiences and, and, and they're a little bit rough, but they're beautiful experiences because you grow from that and it makes me a better person and it made me, you know, a, a better anthropologist, a better archaeologist. I, at least I feel like it did so it's definitely not always easy man it's not always just an easy journey to go out and do a bunch of field work 
Well, and I think that like, you know, when you're, when you're in, when you're in a place that's, that's, that, that you're not from, you know, a culture that's, that's different than your own, you know, when you, when you, when you are a guest in somebody else's culture, mm-hmm. I think is, is a, is a better way of putting it. Yeah. Great way. Right. Um, you know, I remember like my first trip to Cuba was in 1996, 1997. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to Cuba because, you know, when I, when I was an undergrad going to community college, um, in my Latin American history class, my professor, um, assigned country case studies. Everybody wanted Cuba. I, I wanted Brazil actually. And, um, and he assigned Cuba to me, you know, and, um, you know, people were like fighting over Cuba and he was like, Nope, John's doing it. And I went, what the hell, <laughs> you know, but what he ended up doing to a great degree, I believe this was opening the door to my destiny really. Um, because I did the country case study and then I continued my, my, my thirst and my, my, my hunger really for, for understanding Cuba in a more elaborate way. He really put me on the path to become a Latin American historian. Um, and so I kept going on my own. I kept researching, research, research. So I had read probably about a hundred books and articles. So I had read, and I don't mean like glanced at, I mean read <laughs> like hundred, a hundred sources on Cuban history, culture, and politics. Wow. So I went, okay, nothing else to do now, but go, I got to go. Mm-hmm. Right. So I sold my 64 Impala and I went to Cuba to study Spanish at the university of Havana for a month. And it was it, what I thought of, I knew about the world could fit on the head of a pin. Wow. It, it was a game changer, man. It took, it took my understanding of life and turned it on its, uh, upside down, you know? How so? How so? Well, so for example, like, so I had all of these, you know, it's funny because, you know, we talk about armchair anthropologists, right? <laughs> the early, the early, the, the early, you know, rich guys, you know, white guys that, you know, with massive library, right? They didn't really do so, shit. <laughs> right. Other than indigenous people right so so i went so i went to cuba and i was like okay any 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 culture that is absent of racism i gotta go see like that's a utopia for me i there's no racism in cuba i gotta go because everything i read you know cuba has eradicated uh has eradicated racism you know uh, interesting racial equality right we land I get to the airport and I'm like racism, like right out of the gate. I'm like racism. And we're like, okay, check that one off. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and on and on and on. Right. And so I was there a month and just learned like, you know, things happen at a different pace. Right. You know, we are so impatient, you know, and we're so reduced to like a fast food, you know, happy meal, you know, everything happens super quick, little sound bites, you know, and on to the next and whatnot. And it's like, you know, for example, went to, uh, went to the Palacio de la Salsa, which is a famous salsa club 
in the Hotel Riviera mm. in Havana, which was owned by uh, Meyer Lansky, I believe. Um, it, you know, back in the 50s when, when the mob was running Havana. And so I went and the band was supposed to start at 10 o'clock. And so I was like, well, got to get a good seat. Let's go at nine. Right. So I get there and nobody's there. They took my cover charge. I went in, nobody in the, in the venue. And then there was one couple like, uh, a foreigner with a Cuban. And it was just the three of us in there for a long time. The house was going on. They were dancing, but then, you know, then a couple more people started to trickle in. The foreigners were coming in, you know, and it got to be 10 o'clock, hardly anybody in the club, 1030, 11 o'clock. It started to fill up a little more. 1130 started to fill up a little more. 12, 1230. I've been there since nine. It's 1230. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> right. Go, what's going on? So finally, I'm like, man, I'm tired. Forget this. The band didn't go on until 1 a.m. Damn. <laughs> 10 o'clock start time, 1 o'clock in the morning, they started. <laughs> right? Waiting forever. Right. And, you know, and it wasn't until I did my film on Carlos that I started to understand why. Because at that time, he was living there. And he was playing and he was talking to me about like his personal commute coming from another province into Havana, you know, which would be like, you know, 50 minutes by car, but it's like four hours by, you know, public transit, you know? And so, you know, not everything happens, you know, in such a monochromatic way, like we're used to it happening, you know, especially Cali, probably Cali's moves fast. Right. And things will happen at whenever 30, you know, for a whole (laughs) host of reasons. Right. So for example, like my, my Spanish tutor told me, she was like, you got to go see my boyfriend's band play. And I said, where do they play? They play at the Copacabana hotel in Miramar, which is a neighborhood kind of in the outskirts. It's not right in the thick of things in Havana. It's like a 15, 20 minute cab ride, whatever. Mm. So I get in the cab. And I say, take me to Copacabana. And at the time, I wasn't familiar with Cuba. It was my first trip. I had no idea where we were going. Now, I would know, I would know, hey, no, you took a wrong turn there. No, right? I would be able to tell them how to get there. Okay. Right? At the time, I was flying blind. So I'm like, you know, I don't know where we're going. We get there and I tell them to wait because it was late and there was no, no cabs around. And tourism, it was 1997, right? So mm. the tourism wasn't like it is today, mm-hmm. right? So I said, wait for me. So I go into the hotel. There's no band playing. And so I go up to the front desk. I said, hey, isn't there supposed to be a band playing? They said, oh, no, they canceled tonight. <laughs> I went, okay. So the next day when I saw my tutor, I said, what happened? She goes, oh, the flute player got his flute stolen. So they the band canceled oh no <laughs> yeah like, oh, no. you know and that's how stuff happens and yeah. that was like my whole month right like you know you like there were these so check this out this is a funny story so in my, in my hotel in my hotel 
the first the first meal, black bean soup, fish, white rice. Oh man, this black bean soup's incredible. The next day, black bean soup, fish, and rice. And we get to have it again. Third day. Okay, well, you know, <laughs> soup's good, but you know. Yeah. Fourth day. Tenth day. Same. I'll just get a cheese sandwich bar. I'll buy my dinner. Yeah. That's crazy. I don't know. Same for you, y'all too. Same food. So then I was like, man, I'm going to ride my bike because I rented a bike for the month that I was there. I'm going to ride my bike down to the gas station because they had like this microwavable. It was almost like a hot pocket pizza like thing. Right. So, you know, I, I ordered the thing. The guy turns around, puts it in the microwave for like whatever, three minutes. It gets to be like two and a half minutes. <laughs> Power outage. <laughs> blackout and i'm like and then i'll just take it like that he's like he's like no sorry we're closed and i'm like no clothes like here's my money he was like no i can't take it we're closed damn like, let me leave you the money and give me the thing and i'll take it i'll eat it like that he was like i can't do it we're closed wow and i was like man so when i got home after the month my that was back you know i mean it was 97 so you could meet your party right at the gate at the airport mm, right mm. pre 9-11 right yep, yep. And so my wife and her friend picked me up and she goes don't kill me you're gonna be so mad and i was like what happened she goes my car got towed and i go okay i go well is there money to get it out of the 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 impound she goes yeah i go well let's go get it and she goes, you're not mad? I said, no. How, how are you not mad? I said, my whole month has been like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where like now, if that happened, I would be like, yeah, you know, yeah, you know yeah. totally, totally upset, right? Yeah, yeah. No. Like, let's go get it, you know? In other words, you know, it's a perspective of, you know, is it really not that big a deal, right? And it's like, count your blessings, shit. You have a car, you have the money. Yep. There's food in the fridge. You know, not everybody can say that. And I think that, you know, that is, you know, part of being in a, in a, in an environment that's different because, you know, then you start to, to buffer the culture shock. It goes the other way too, man, because culture shock, they, you know, it gets referred to as reverse culture shock. Like when you come out of the field. Yeah. 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 I mean, that happened like it, my second trip was in 2000, 2001, 2000. And I was working at, uh, you know, the store Papyrus? Uh, I, yeah, it sounds familiar. I don't know the exact store, but it sounds familiar. Or the brand Papyrus, like a high-end like greeting card. Yeah. So I worked at the flagship store when I was in grad school at the Embarcadero Center in San Francisco. So it's a big, like, cushy mall in the, you know, the thick of the financial district of San Francisco. And there I am, like helping people. So this, so I had just gotten back from Cuba, and this woman came in. To, uh, she wanted help with her her engagement party or uh, invitations. So I'm sitting there helping her, and I literally had just gotten back. 
And she had a rock on her finger like this big. That thing was huge diamond on her finger. And she was totally upset because her engagement party invitations were messed up. And she's just like talking and talking. She's pissed. And I'm sitting there like thinking about coming back from seeing people living in extreme poverty. Yeah. With real problems all kinds of shortages in terms of resources, running water, mm-hmm. food. Real shit. <laughs> yeah. And I went, hold on one second. I went in the, in the back room, took off my apron, hung it up, clocked out, and just walked out. I'm like, <laughs> I go, somebody else is going to have to help her. Wow. I, go, I go, I'm out. Wow. And they're like, they're like, what? I go, I quit. I'll be back to, on payday to get my paycheck. And she was like, you can't leave. I'm like, somebody else will help you. I just bounced. I just couldn't deal with like this. I was sitting there listening to her just jaw. Yeah. This is your biggest problem. (laughs) Your biggest problem. It was too much for me. Yeah. That's that reverse culture shock. Like you're talking about though, when you realize like, wow, I'm back in this environment with all these entitled ass motherfuckers. Like, no, I got, I got to get out of here. This is, this is too much. This is way too much. My homie, my homie, my really good friend, um, he, the first time he went to Cuba was like 1980 when nobody was going to Cuba, mm-hmm. 80, 81. Mm-hmm. And um, he said that when he got home from Cuba, he couldn't get out of bed for a week. Why he, was so, like, he was so messed up about come, being back home, you know, because culture shock is a sliding scale of, of you know, it can be just like some like just discomfort of of being in a different environment but full-blown depression right there's like that big of a range straight up depression of, of how it how it how it affects people you know yeah, I mean? yeah so. straight up depression even traveling traveling itself sometimes can bring about a travel depression even if there is maybe culture shock has to factor into that travel depression or reverse culture shock where you get back home and you're kind of tripping like I really missed that place or that place was so beautiful or something. It's it's a brilliant point what what you make when you say that that sort of when you're in these places where you're experiencing discomfort, then you are able to better handle discomfort period. <laughs> it's like it's it's quite simple, right? Like you get you get used to um just being in a in a constant position of like okay, uh where am I going to go next or uh what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So I always think like um recently I've been doing this thing where in at the end of my showers, I put on a freezing cold shower. Like I, I like to take a nice warm shower and then at the very end, I turn it on freezing cold and I I just shock the shit out of my body and it's it, at first your body freaks out and it's like oh my god what's going on and i can't breathe it's literally like it's hard to breathe and it's like oh my gosh and then eventually it kind of levels out and i'm able to breathe and then it's fine and i'm like oh it's all good it's just cold water <laughs> that's all that's all that happens i'm regular and it's just cold water so when i when i have these travel experiences and able to go to these different places like you're saying you're then able to bring bring that back with you and then apply it to your everyday life like you're saying and that's pretty crazy that you just 
quit your job right then and there you walked out and you're like you know what fuck this i can't deal with this lady anymore because this lady's priorities are just all all screwed up um you question and this is if something that you've experienced or not but um when what is the right time or when is the appropriate time for somebody to do field work because when i was in a community college i always wanted to do field work on the rave scene because i was like big into raving at the time and the rave culture i think is quite interesting because of the amount of crazy people in the rave culture the drug usage the music like from an anthropological perspective rave culture is like there's so much to study so i was a little young little young dude in pcc right in pasadena city college being like i want to study raves i want to study raves and my professors were like that's awesome but just wait like wait until you're at like a certain level and then you're able to study raves like what do you what do you think about that like do you have any recommendations for your students if they're like i want to go out and i want to study this like is there um is there ways or, or or ways to get into field work that are not so risk heavy at first or what do you think like what 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 advice do you give to your students well first of all <laughs> Um, if so, you know, like personally and pedagogically, I like, I like encouraging people to study what they want to study. Mm. You know, what I, mean? I think that, you know, part of the, part of the, I, I get, you know, from the student standpoint and that curiosity and that, that want, I understand your perspective, but now at this point in my life and career, I also understand your professor's perspective as well. Mm. Maybe, you know, sometimes I think when you're so close and so attached to the culture that you want to study, that could pose challenges, right? Your, your professors might have been trying to protect you given, you know, your maturity or lack thereof at the time. You know, maybe that, you know, in more advanced studies, you would have a, a more refined toolkit and better poise to ask more informed questions you know um it was interesting because you know like the the first researcher i encountered um a buddy of my my compadre actually um his son's my godson me and this dude go back to junior high Um, he was a body piercer up in portland oregon and he and his piercing community had this event on december 11th every year and they just called it december 11th and he was like hey man i really want you to come up and i really want you to see what we do and i'm like okay cool i'll come up so i went up there mm. and they were they were doing um suspension oh whoa. yeah they were doing suspension they wow. were doing they were doing pulls you know, you want, where, you want to describe um, suspensions real quick to folks who, who may be listening and don't know what that is? Yeah. So basically, you know, people, they would put meat hooks in people and hang, you know, either like <laughs> off, off of, off of the, the, the back shoulder blades or full blown horizontal suspension with pulleys and racks and shit. And I was like, that's full hanging. No, no feet touching the ground. No ladders full on, full on skin stretching off. Yeah. Like, like, you know, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, and then, uh, 
And then, you know, like, like hypodermic needles, like in like doing art on people's back, like full back, like spiraling with needle insertion. Wow. I haven't seen that one. Or like, you know, a, a metal skewer, like in one cheek and out the other, and then walking around like my comadre was walking around with this metal skewer Sick. Through, through her cheek. Like, <laughs> Sick. Like, and I'm like, all right. <laughs> how you drink like, water? <laughs> what's that? How, how you drink water? Is it good? <laughs> well, like, you know, I'm not approved, you know, but I was definitely out of my element. Like, I couldn't really relate to it at all. Mm-hmm. Other than, you know, like, my my boy was just like, so like proud of what they were doing. It was the first time I had ever eaten vegan food. Mm. Right. And I was like, would you, right, would you eat? I don't vegan food. <laughs> I remember, but I remember it wasn't enough. I like, I tried it to be cool. Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. Didn't want to be like, you know, but I tend to eat higher up the food chain. So I was like, Hey man, is there a taqueria around here? <laughs> Cause I gotta have some meat, you know? And so I ended up getting, going but there was a woman there There was a woman there who was getting her master's thesis and she was writing it on body piercing and so she was there doing field work so i was talking to her just you know about her work and whatnot but Mm -hmm. uh, but you know she was in the field but she was very you know clinical and there you know sitting in the corner you know and i'm thinking like man like in retrospect if she if like they should have they should have put a hook in her back (laughs) So she could have felt what it was like, you know, that struggle for the emic, mm. you know, that, that getting, you know, because you can write mm. about it, you can write about it. But I think if they had put a skewer through her cheek, you know, she would have had a different perspective about things, for sure. you know? And, um, and so, you know, but that was like my first, the first researcher that I had met, you know, and it was, it was funny, but as far as like, you know, my students go, I do a research exercise. Like I do a field, a field work exercise and a methods class. Like we go to the mall, we go to the mall and I have them do like go into five stores that they've never been into. And then they're, they document like how they felt walking in, walking around, you know, the engagement or lack thereof with the staff. Right. But what I tell them is no matter what, don't show up with binders and clipboards or notebooks, you know, and inevitably people do. They start writing down in the store and then people freak out. You know, sometimes they get kicked out, you know, but I've, I've yet to have a student come to me, you know, and say, you know, I want to go out in the field and study X. You know what I'm saying? I mean, th- they might write on an anthropological topic, mm-hmm. but it's more of doing that that ethno history, right? It's very preliminary, you know. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's you know what I think that what's important, what's important in, with any research, and 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 I, I actually want to talk about this right now mm-hmm. is the importance of the, the human subjects protocol. Right. Because the human subjects protocol is basically, you know, the, 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 the contract you have with your institution 
that basically says that you're making a, a positive contribution that the people in question are going to benefit from your study and your findings and they won't be exploited in the process i think that that's the the, the ethic the ethical checks and balances in the research process is very very necessary to adhere to you know and that way you know because anthropologists historically have gotten a bad rap and right rightfully so yep. because they have historically sold out their 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 quote-unquote subjects or the people that they are, they have become expert in knowing about you know if you're talking about you know the vietnam war and the cia um putting anthropologists on the payroll to use them to for intelligence and interpretation wow. right that completely negates why we do this you know i mean it, it or you know um you know anthropologists taking advantage of, of indigenous people in the field, you know, his going way back to having sexual relations, you know, with women, cause it was men conducting the field work and then, or, you know, reinforcing racist stereotypes on the back end of, of the research. Yeah. Yeah. Or even worse going after the children of the village. Cause there's a lot of right. anthropologists, unfortunately, there's stories and accounts of folks who did that shit too, man. Right. But, you know, I mean, you know, like, like you you know you're going back to your question about should i be here i mean you know i think the question the reoccurring question for anthropologists in the field is at what point do i have a right to speak on what i disagree with in the field mm, you know in course. other words how 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 can i be here and not disrupt the cultural flow here you know what i mean because at the end of the day, we're there temporarily. Yeah, you know, visitors. I mean, very few people, quote unquote, go native. You know, and this has been a problem, particularly with feminist anthropologists being in in cultures where female circumcision is a cultural practice. Oh, that's a, right? yeah, wow. You know, I mean, that's a big deal, yeah. right? Whew. That's a big. That's a big deal. You know. Um, and and my professor at San Francisco State, he was doing, uh, he was working on a film um, with um, uh, a guy who was an alleged santero or practitioner of santeria in New Jersey. Okay. The name of the film is called Yo Soy Echistero. I am sorcerer. And and he asked me what I thought of the film. And African-based religion throughout the, throughout the diaspora is one of my quote unquote, you know, fields of expertise. And he said, what'd you think of the film? And I said, I don't know. I said, because my knowledge of, of Santeria is not necessarily shown in my understanding of things. It's unclear as what he's doing. Um, but I would need to see every minute of raw footage in order to get a better idea of what he's doing. But he was telling me that when they were doing the film, that the guy was cutting people with a dirty knife. Whoa. And they were like, they were like, they as a production were, 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 were worried about that because they were like, you know, he could infect people. They mm -hmm. could be transmitting you know, all a whole host of of viruses, including HIV and AIDS at the time. Mm -hmm. So um 
you know, people may or may not have their tetanus shots. Like at what point? So what they did is they just encouraged him to use a clean blade, right? Because they were freaked out about what he was doing in terms of a cultural practice, number one. But then they were like, okay, we got to check ourselves now. So how do we intervene without being completely intrusive, right? So they encouraged they encouraged the guy to use a clean blade, right? That way that would help to mitigate some of those potential transmissions. And how did that individual take that encouragement? Was he receptive to Receptive. Okay. Receptive. Cool. Receptive. Because it, it was allegedly happening under this altered state of consciousness, like a spirit possession or whatever. So I don't know, man. But, but it is a problem. Like, you know, at what point, you know, am I, am I, you know, is it appropriate? It, it, yeah. At what point am I potentially being culturally intrusive here or ethnocentric? Yeah. 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 That's a super valid, valid question. Um, <laughs> super valid question. And that question will be addressed again on the podcast numerous times, especially with cultural anthropologists and individuals like yourself. So thank you so much for posing that question and, and thanks for being on. And um, as always, man, I have to give you a chance to share your social media so that people can, <laughs> can follow you if that's what they want to do and they can see your awesome photos. So are you wrapping me up then? Are we are we a wrap? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We're wrapping it up. We're wrapping it up. Did we, did we talk about anything? Did we, <laughs> is there anything of value here? I think I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. People learning yeah. about people learning about spikes going in cheeks and shit like that. Yeah. I just, you know, I just want to say something before we wrap. What's you up? Know, I think that you know when when we're in the field, you know, um, and we're and we're dealing with culture shock. And we might be homesick and we might, you know, be looking for cultural familiarity. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of different tricks, you know, that we have, you know, we carry photographs. I mean, I think that nowadays, you know, social media and the internet helps us keep connected, but we can't always take for granted that we're going to have, you know, immediate access to a Wi-Fi connection or what have you. Yep. You know, um, you know, when I was in Japan, doing field work for my for my globalization of low writing project um you know i was i was starting to like melt down in tokyo because it was just like you know cultural stim i mean it was just like sensory overload mm-hmm. and the density and the pace of things you know and it was funny because i was like i need i need to just get off the street and I found myself getting off the street by going into a McDonald's. I was, you know, I was about to say that go to McDonald's, eat a freaking Big Mac or <laughs> the well, chicken I, nuggets. It, it wasn't even like that. I just ordered a cup of coffee and I just needed to sit down. Mm-hmm. And then I started to trip out about how McDonald's was functioning in Japan. So, you know, I mean, even though we think that you know, we might be having some cultural refuge in one of those familiar places, man, you know, you're not home. So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, that's that's so crazy. My wife and I always say that, like whenever we're traveling abroad and I'm getting a little bit of homesick or whatever, I'll go to the, the nearest McDonald's because there's most definitely probably a McDonald's wherever we're at traveling and just being yeah. inside a McDonald's smelling that smell. And the the menus are a little bit different, right? They have like regional items, you right. know, wherever, wherever you're at, like some McDonald's right. in Europe sell beer and some have right. 
uh, you know, like fish and egg rolls and, and whatnot. But yeah. I, I use that. I use that trick also. I use that trick yeah. also. Um, yeah. So yeah, man, go ahead. Please share your social media for folks so they could check out your amazing stories and follow along with your car build as well. Right on, man. So the, it, it, you know, find me on Instagram lowride underscore x underscore worldwide or if you just type in lowride worldwide you'll see the lw and uh, that's my brand and my logo and and you'll find me there okay cool and um as always john i like to ask folks two questions at the very end of each podcast and you i already asked you these two questions and you answered them beautifully the last time but the first question was where do you think we're headed next in our phase of evolution have you got a chance to to think about that or you know are you pleading the fifth what you think my a man i don't mean to point my finger (laughs) Um, but, um, but my answer was you know the pandemic's crazy and we talked about virus mutation Mm. and look at here we are you know a month or two later and we're seeing the new strain the uk variant right we're seeing the variations that are more aggressive man so you know where are we going i have no idea man you know (laughs) i mean you know the the insurrection and the attempted coup on the capitol happened you know where are we headed i don't know man i i think that where we're headed is um, we're headed, I think, especially as, you know, th- this thing continues to ramp up. I think where we're, we're headed is, you know, that, that our way of life is really being tested on the whole. Yeah. You know, I think that, 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 you know, our understanding or misunderstanding of democracy is showing um, its fragility. And, um, and so it'll be interesting to see where we're headed with that. You know, I mean, certainly Marx predicted capitalism's failure, you know, and I think that our brand of democracy goes hand in hand with capitalism. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, we are really living in uncertain times. And what's interesting is that, you know, human hardship unites people. You know, historically, when we, look, when we look at the Great Depression, when we when we look at, you know, times of war post 9-11, 9-11, for sure. You know, um, you know, those you know, those things, you know, people will will will, you know, we're social creatures. We need each other, you know. And so, you know, people will will show those bonding characteristics, you know, those social fabrics can 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 be reinforced at times or it can divide people you know in an individualistic get your mentality so um i don't know where we're headed um some people are scared by it i think you know as 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 uh as someone who has committed their life to studying human beings i say you know human beings trip me out that's why i dedicated my life to studying them oh yeah me um, too right um it'll be interesting to see where we're headed but um, you know, I think that we need to certainly um, tighten our seatbelts, be- cinch them up, because um, this ride, I think, is is going to ebb and flow a little bit. I think, you know, the you know that flat line of complacency has come to an end, and now we're seeing you know a lot of dynamics, particularly you know our place in the geopolitical schema as well. You totally. know, we. We as a society are no longer that shining beacon 
of hope and light. You know, the world's looking at us going, welcome to our world. Yeah. You know, so that's my answer. So again, answering without answering. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And what's your favorite thing about people, man? Oof. Or one of your one of your favorite things about people. Favorite thing about people? Um, I think you know. I think that you know, culture is dynamic. There's a lot of, that we haven't gotten to, you know. Um, and I think that you know, um, you know, culture, it, the dynamics of culture, you know, and um, and language as an example of demonstrating the fluidity of culture, um, I think is is really fantastic and 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 always piques my curiosity. I love how I love how people communicate, you know, verbally and non-verbally, visually. You know, I think it's interesting. Um, so I think that my favorite thing about people is is learning about them, right? In terms of, you know, trying to see, trying to see, you know, how people behave and um and incorporating that good, bad, or the ugly into my own understanding of the world because, you know, our cultural decks are constantly being shuffled and reshuffled. And I think that, you know, that's very, very interesting to me is to, is to look at how people live and go, okay, that's not how I live, but what can I understand, you know, by, by looking at that? And then ultimately, how, does, how can I incorporate that into my better, better self-understanding? Wow. I like that a lot, man. Yeah, I, I yeah. totally like that a lot. And that kind of relates to um, where we're headed, what you were saying, where we are headed in, in our overall evolution and like how the different ways we could go <laughs> and what what ways that, that we could go. And for a long time, I said that you, you said it brilliantly that, you know, our cultural decks are, are being shuffled up for a long time. You know, pre, I would say pre 2016, pre Trump era, I would say for a long time, man, Americans were so comfortable. We're so comfortable. We're so comfortable. We hadn't had like a really big event to shake us up and really rock our world and question and cause us to question you know like who we are as a society and that's exactly what's going on right now we've had so many events you know from 2016 on that have really caused us to rethink the fabric of our society um, not only that but like you mentioned now uh, now the, the way the world looks at us now like people are probably other uh, people in other countries are probably turning on the, the news in the u.s going what are these crazy fucking americans up to today man it's like a show yeah um, which was crazy because that wasn't the case for for a long time so thank you so much for sharing those thoughts and thank you for sharing those sentiments and thank you again for being on and sharing all your knowledge man like i said this is definitely not the the last time we're gonna do this we're gonna do this a lot more i know that you have so much more to share as well thank you man and again you know i love what you're doing with the podcast and um anthro for the homies yes sir yes sir yes sir Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Anto for the Homies. I mean, shit, you made it this far and you listened to the whole episode, then you're definitely the homie. And just a reminder to all the homies of where you could follow me on social media. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at 
Anto for the homies. I also have a website that sort of serves like a landing page where you could view the different episode listings and different thumbnails and descriptions of the episode. It's anthroforthehomies.podbean.com. And there's also a Podbean app in which you could listen to other podcasts and comment and like and leave different reviews for each episode. So it's pretty cool. And just a reminder, if you could please help me get the word out about this podcast, that would be great. Let, you know, five or 10 or even 20 of your homies know about this podcast. Please hit subscribe. Please share the episodes. And I'd really appreciate it. This is a one man show. I'm your host and your producer and <laughs> every everything else. So I'm um, bear with me as I work through the technical difficulties of starting up a podcast. I'm realizing, you know, the limitations of certain equipment and making adjustments as necessary. So I'd really appreciate it and tune into the next one. Thank you very much.